0: Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on today's show, the rise of the thought police in Britain, Nancy Pelosi's reckless virtue signalling and Beyonce censors her own lyrics. So it seems if the thought police are on the march in Britain, Last week, uh, Darren Brady found police turning up at his home coming to arrest him for sharing a meme. The meme essentially just showed uh, the pride flag or the Progress Pride flag rearranged in such a way as to resemble a swastika. Also this week, we had uh, Tory contender Rishi Sunak talking about how he'd like to refer people who vilify Britain to prevent the UK government's counter-extremism program. I mean Tom, this is a pretty bleak picture emerging
1: here, you know, in terms of state censorship? I think so. I mean, I'm not sure, I don't think for a second that Rishi Sunak's plans are ever going to come to fruition, not least because I'd be very surprised if he won the leadership. But um, in general, it points to the fact that there seems to almost be a kind of logic here. There's a Mm. kind of assumption that this is the sort of thing the state should be getting up to. And whilst Rishi Sunak might have been trying to kind of throw red meat to some imaginary base with that particular proposal about clamping down on anti-British sentiment. There is still, as we saw with the Darren Brady case, this pre-existing constant, um, interference in terms of speech and debate, particularly when it comes to certain issues around gender identity, around work issues, whatever, which we just see case and case and case of. I mean, this particular one uh, happening in Hampshire where footage of this went viral over the course of the past week or so, um, is really shocking, I think, because this is a good example of how the police are almost thoughtlessly getting involved in this mm. now. So this particular gentleman, he'd, sh- he'd shared this quite um, controversial meme. Um, according to um, him and according to Harry Miller, who is the kind of anti-woke kind of woke policing campaigner, also been a victim of this sort of thought police himself, they'd already been in contact. And so essentially, the, according to them, the police had said to them, You've committed a crime, seemingly some sort of like something under the Communications Act for Grossly Offensive Online Speech. Um, If you pay us a small amount of money, we will downgrade it to a non-crime and put you on a course. (laughs) Um, And some of the lessons that you would learn are things apparently like ask your neighbor if before you post something to check that it's not painfully (laughs) offensive. Um, And then, of course, they decide he refuses to pay this. They say they're going to come back 10 days later, at which point Harry Miller and Lawrence Fox from the Reclaim Party and their kind of bad law project are there to intervene. Mm. They end up putting handcuffs on Darren Brady, but also in the end, it's Harry Miller who ends up getting arrested because he tries to get in between the police and um, this individual. And if, if, when you look at the footage, I and mean, when you look at what's come out of it, they're not entirely clear what law this man is supposed to have broken. The only thing that they say to him, at least on film, is that he's has caused anxiety to mm. people, which is incredibly vague. And then you have this weird process whereby it's kind of being downgraded. And of course, I think this is a growing picture we see, is that there's all these different kind of elements, whether it's the non-crime aspect of this, or whether it's the kind of existing sort of hate, hate speech legislation, or whatever. And... Th- it's almost like the police just reaching for whatever it is that they can, such as that there's this kind of sentiment um, within the police and within large sections of the British state that this is just something that they should concern themselves with. And I think that's going to be one of the things that makes it really difficult to push back on is that this is is now a kind of very clear cultural Mm. problem within the police and within broader society. And that's going to be the thing that needs to be unpicked beyond what the particular laws and what the particular provisions are.
0: Yeah, you mentioned a uh, non-crime hate incidents, and you know people will be aware that in in the past few years there was a you know, Harry Miller again brought a case um, against the College of Policing who came up with these uh, non-crime hate incidents, and the courts told them to rewrite their guidance around it. A new guidance was released only last month saying that police should not be intervening in cases that are trivial. They should not be intervening in cases where there is a political or social debate, even if people are offended. Mm. And yet still. We are seeing police you know taking these kinds of actions, treating you know it as their job to be the thought police essentially,
2: yeah, it's really important to to highlight what it is that Brady is supposedly guilty of. He posted a you know a picture of the trans flag trans inclusive flag made up like a swastika, which is the most monotonously stupid thing in the world. It's like what teenagers do it's so incredibly childish and <laughs> And for that, the police told him that he was being arrested because it had caused anxiety. Mm. And it's just, it's like a carnival of the ridiculous. It, you can't believe that this is something that police would take their time over. And the whole thing about non-crime hate incidents and this really murky sort of area of of law or non-law, sort of like <laughs> keeps stepping into whether or not it is something that you would get a jail sentence for or not, um, it ends up with the police spending their time doing this ridiculous stuff and it's sort of like you know most of the time i don't have much patience for the this discussion becoming about resources because actually there's a very serious political question here but you do have to take into context the fact that you know for example the met the biggest police force in the uk are in special measures there are five or six other police forces in the uk in special measures you know, for varying reasons, but all of them have got a problem with fighting crime. Yeah. You know, and that—that's all of them have got a problem with rape stats. All of them have got a problem with knife crime stats. You know, the serious bread and butter of policing, which is stopping harmful people from physically hurting others, is not happening. And yet, you have these seemingly rogue officers who just—if if, it almost feels like they just fancied it on a Saturday afternoon to annoy someone.
0: It's like there was a huge team of them as well turned up at. Um, Mr Brady's house yeah it was
2: and and if you watch the video it's kind of it's sort of incredibly informal the way in which they talk is it's like they're making it up on the hoof you know like the idea that you would use a word like anxiety to arrest someone and I think that is you know you have to take it seriously which is that people you forget that the police aren't just like community sport officers who are kind of coming around to tick you off they have the power of the state behind them Mm. if you know being even spoken to by a police officer is not a it's not a pleasant thing being accosted by a police officer is not something any citizen should have to go through unless they've you know done some serious harm so it it's just well, the upshot of this is the police get let off as this kind of like friendly neighborhood service when in actual fact what they're doing is incredibly punitive
0: and tom do you think it speaks to Rishi Sunak wants to make it you know a problem to slag off britain but really it's slagging off trans rights mm. You know, questioning Black Lives Matter. It's it's woke issues that have the force of the state protecting them really at the moment. But also,
2: isn't it? couldn't you also say it's like if I say the government's crap, <laughs> then that's like you know the, the scope of this is crazy.
1: Well, yeah, but no one thinks it's going to happen. I don't think yeah, you think yeah. Rich soon, thinks it's going to happen. I think I think you're right, Fraser. <laughs> at least in terms of the cases we know about. Yeah. Right? they all seem to push in one particular direction. Mm. So if you think about the non-crime hate incidents that we've come to know about Harry Miller famously, it was for you know uh, about 30 tweets which were engaging quite robustly, if shall we say, <laughs> the, in the uh, debate around gender self-idea. In limerick think, form. In limerick form. If you think about, say, the Marion Miller case, mm. um, who was, again, actually t- taken through the courts on um, not a non-crime hate incident, but actually an, an issue of speech crime, effectively, because trans activists took offence to her... Kind of gender critical campaigning, essentially spuriously suggesting that you know images of ribbons tied around a tree in the colours of the suffragettes were nooses and all mm. this kind of nonsense. Um, there's been various other cases of people who've been visited by the police, arrested for misgendering, which has been something that we've seen time and time again. So it does seem to be pushing in one particular direction. Yeah, and you even though some of the things that happen with the police that we think are just cringy and embarrassing, like them you know doing themselves up in the pride colours and twerking at pride events or whatever. You put all these things together and it does not create the impression of a section the, the wing of the state latching onto a particular ideology mm. and punishing dissenters from it. There's no other way that you can read that at this particular point in time. And it's interesting because you talk about the guidance and that has changed. And reading through it, you know, as you say, there are these kind of caveats that they've now applied to um, the guidance to try and make sure that people don't allow the trivial or malicious or any of these kind of complaints to get through. I thought it was quite interesting reading some of the examples and case, kind of made up case studies they had for it. And it was like a Christian complains about someone saying anti religious things. Yeah. It was um, someone complaining about a radio host because they were on the radio talking about the evils of British colonialism, Mm. you know. Um, Someone complaining because the police had gotten involved to deal with um, transphobic posters or something of this matter. It was really fascinating that those were the three examples that they reached for. And I think, in its own small way, points to the problem, which is this is cultural, it's political. And I think that's why, despite the fact that we have seen first the High Court and then the Court of Appeal not only say that the treatment of Harry Miller was unlawful, but then at the Court of Appeal say that actually the guidance was unlawful, that it lives on. Yeah. Um, now, of course, that ruling didn't say throw out non-crime hatreds itself. It just said that they needed to be properly treated. But I think it's just a reminder that even with that, even with the Chief Inspector of Constabulary getting involved, even with various PCCs condemning particular case studies, as we saw um, in the past week in Hampshire, nothing really changes because the problem is that there is this ideology which has really been taken up in large parts of the British state. Yeah. And that's the thing that makes it incredibly difficult to tackle, but almost all the more important that we do tackle it, I suppose. And
0: even sort of legislatively, there isn't, you know, you would think that the Conservative Party might be interested in pushing back on this stuff, supposedly they're anti-woke, but, you know, soon we have the kind of online safety bill potentially coming Mm. down the tracks, you know, allowing social media companies to take down legal but harmful Mm -hmm. Um, speech. So it only ever expands, really, this censorship.
2: And the funny thing about the Tory leadership debate is that, you know, in the same breath as, well, a few days before talking about this new extended prevent strategy, Rishi Sunak released this kind of uh, policy they'd picked out of a hat about, you know, having free speech embedded within policing. What what does that mean in Mm -hmm. the context of everything we've just talked about? Liz Truss saying, you know, also releasing some kind of policy statement saying, you know, police officers need to get better at solving murders, which is, you know, I'm sure many police officers would be like, oh, okay, is that our job? You know, it's an utterly ridiculous, um, superficial understanding of what's actually going on because you, you know, it's getting into the kind of the weeds of the legislation can be boring and it can sound technical, but it's actually where a lot of the evils of this stuff is happening in minute clauses. You know, the whole kind of not harmful, hateful, harmful, all that, all that kind of, all that trickery around what kind of language is used is what then gets brought against individuals in court. And it's so unfair because most of the time, you know, whether it's particularly with the Marion Miller um, case, it's just common sense that anyone in, anyone in their right mind would understand what was happening there. Yeah. And yet these things that would previously have been hashed out between individuals in the public square get dragged through this incredibly technocratic process of through the courts where no one wins out. Uh, and in the end and free speech gets damaged so you kind of there is a there's a cultural and political point here but there's also the point that the way in which legislation is being used to kind of basically supplant political debate in the public square is going to have serious ramifications
0: and importantly there's a chilling effect it's not just the people who get arrested it's the you, you mm. see people getting arrested you see the police getting
1: involved in these debates i think that's that's a really important point i mean it sends a message to everyone else but it's i think it's also worth remembering the scale of the state censorship or state interference which is actually materially happening to individuals mm. i mean as far as we know and this is only one estimate over about five year time period is that more, more than 120,000 people have non-crime hate incidents to their name there was that study um that FOI request kind of survey done by the Times in 2017, I believe, which was found that, what was it, about nine people a day yeah. were being actually arrested yeah. by the police for things that they had posted on the internet. So mm. the scale of the state censorship that we're looking at is, is surely beyond anything we've ever really seen. And it's that's why, be, you know, there is the chilling effect, obviously, and that's always an impact of state censorship anyway. You make examples of people effectively. But it's also, it's not just a, you know, it, it's not just something where the chilling effect is is almost the the you know the least sinister part yeah. of it. at This rate. the amount of people who actually find themselves inside of a jail cell because of things that they've posted on the internet, or at least being visited by the police, is surely higher than it's than it's ever been, and that's yeah. something that we really need to take very very seriously. And I find it so interesting that particularly people who try to dismiss a lot of the free speech mm. arguments, whether it's around cancel culture, whether it's around the kind of more more of those kinds of debates that we often have, whether it's around university campuses, people saying that's not really censorship because it's not the state. Here's a clear-cut example of state censorship, which is rampant, yeah. and they don't care yeah. because of that reason that we they know which direction it's pushing in, and they're quite comfortable with that.
0: We were talking a lot there about um, Harry Miller's case, and if you want to hear from the man himself, he was the guest on the Brendan O'Neill show this week, so check that out on the link above. So this week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made an explosive visit to Taiwan. She's the highest-ranking US official to visit Taiwan for Twenty-five years, and quite predictably, this has enraged uh, Beijing, which claims ownership of the territory. Uh, they've started an unprecedented six days of military exercises and have effectively mounted a uh, air and sea blockade of Taiwan as a result of this visit. I mean, Tom. I mean, what have you made of this trip? I mean, what exactly is it supposed to have achieved?
1: Well, it seems to have achieved a burnishing of Nancy Pelosi's own credentials. Mm. Um, it, it's been openly talked about as something that she has wanted to do as kind of part of her legacy um, given that I don't think anyone expects to be in politics for that many more years um, yeah. at this point in time. Um, and the sheer narcissism and recklessness of it I think is really quite striking. I mean it's an open secret that there was this disagreement between Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi about whether or not she go these comments which have made it out to the press about Biden saying that it was against the military advice they didn't think it was a good yeah. idea, which is a Not a good idea, the exact quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yet, we're, we're expected to believe um, that he couldn't have put a stop to it. Mm. Um, and it's this very this balance which has been struck for decades now which is that there is this what they call strategic ambiguity so um there's obviously robust relations between taiwan and mm. the us um obviously a lot of support um but formally they don't recognize it as again a kind of separate entity so it's yeah. not to enrage the people's republic of china and to just kind of throw that out because of a desire to pose on the world stage mm. is really quite striking and uh, it, I th- it's, there was a good article in The Economist about this which said that, you know, this isn't strategic ambiguity, this is strategic confusion and yeah. we've seen this in recent times with this Biden administration as well, you know, mm-hmm. in relation to the question of Taiwan first of all, first and foremost. Again, Biden is now kind of seemingly concerned about trying to strike this balance, but back in the spring he was in Japan, he- heavily indicated that he would potentially militarily intervene yeah. if, if China did anything. Again, comments that to be walked back and of course <laughs> we saw it with Ukraine as well. Him calling Putin a a butcher, (laughs) him him letting slip um, when he was addressing people in Poland that um, Putin cannot be allowed to remain in power. And again, these comments having to be walked back and the explanation for it, which I think is really striking, and you kind of see it similarly with the discussion of Nancy Pelosi's trip, is that, you know, this is just something they feel quite passionately about, (laughs) you know. That's not how you conduct yourself on the world stage when you are representing the leading superpower and you're dealing with a tinderbox like Taiwan. But Mm. for whatever reason, because we have this kind of narcissistic, this incredibly reckless and to be be honest, very confused administration, we're starting to see this horrendous situation, which you have this incredibly incoherent, confused, reckless foreign policy from the United States at a time when global tensions haven't been as high as this for many, 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 many years, and it's just a really alarming combination. Yeah, there's, there are kind of two quotes that are always kind of ringing in my mind, You know, especially around when um,
0: the Biden administration kind of assumed power. One is, the adults are back in the room. Gone are the days of reckless Trump stirring up tensions. Mm. And the other was um, a quote from Biden himself saying, diplomacy is back. Diplomacy is going to be at the heart of our foreign policy. And yet, time and again, it's either Biden himself or someone from, you know, someone close to him, like Nancy Pelosi, just tripping over these trip wires or gleefully running through them a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. In this, in this case, in, in Taiwan, it's not a, that's not a slip of the tongue <laughs> to arrange a, a visit. Ella, what have you made of it?
2: Yeah, I mean that you think back to Trump's presidency and how her, everybody thought it was so horrendous the way in which he openly talked about. China in that weird way that he pronounced China and you know, and how uh, sort of upfront he was about, about about his kind of not boosterism but sort of an aggressive approach to international diplomacy. but the one thing you can say about it was that you knew what he was doing. Yeah. you knew what the policy was, you knew what his tone meant. it was very clear what his kind of aims were to a certain extent and the thing you know Tom raises an important point the thing about diplomacy, international diplomacy and how it works, mm. is that you have to have a coherent understanding within your own nation of how you as a political group are going to approach other nations. And the thing about the Biden administration at the moment is, you know, putting aside the kind of increasingly concerning issues around whether or not Biden is actually fit to, to play the role that he's playing in terms of, you know, his, his slip of the tongue's and point, I'm also saying things like, other well, troops will find out when they get there. You know, like making the most. We'll
1: see when you get there. Unbelievable! The right? It's famously said. Yeah, mistakes
2: mm. that you that just you, he doesn't understand. It's like he doesn't understand how powerful actually some. You know, the president of the United States saying things like this still is on yeah. the world stage. He's treating it sort of <laughs> very superficially but that 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 having an agreement within your own your own kind of politicians is important to how you look to other nations. So if China you know if Beijing's watching on and looking at the Biden administration at the moment, it's a bit like what happened when you know Putin was looking on at what's going on in Europe and within the UK and other European nations and thinking these people don't know you know how to run their own countries, let alone how to intervene in other nations and how to engage on the kind of geopolitical stage. You know, and you might be thinking, now's my time. Now, I don't th- I don't think we should be too alarmist about what's going on uh, in relation to Beijing's kind of warmongering stance. But, you know, performance matters. That if you have politicians who don't understand the seriousness of international diplomacy and, you know, when to say quiet things in quiet and when to say loud things out loud, then you end up blundering into not World War Three, but some kind of international conflict, which is ultimately at the end of it going to be terrible for Taiwanese people. And that, that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Tom, it's
1: Well, I think it's just the, as you were saying, Fraser, the kind of contrast between what this particular administration said that it was going to um, bring us back to and what has actually been the reality is really, really striking. I mean, I remember during the Trump transition, I believe, when um, he took a call from the Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen and everyone lost their shit. They were like mm. how could he have not known this? How could yeah, he how yeah. could he have realized that this wasn't going to rot the boat? And yet now we see a provocation as large as this. And, and you know of course all right thinking people will support Taiwan, mm. its democracy and its right to self-determination. But at the same time this isn't a game. Yeah. You know, this isn't a stage on which you virtue signal and throw up slogans. Um, because of the fact that there are very real consequences to those kinds of actions, very real threats of escalation, and a very delicate balance here which needs to be maintained. And I think what's almost it would be one thing if there was a decision mm. <laughs> on the part of the US to really rattle China's cage. Um, but this has happened almost accidentally. Yeah. Um they're expecting us to believe that. The, it's just a bit of freelancing on Pelosi's case, which it seems like it is, but at the same time, you cannot have a, have a situation where someone in the presidential line of succession is just doing things because it feels right. Mm.
2: Or good for her career. Or,
1: or good for her career, or you know, works in terms of um, something that she's... and she's obviously been very concerned about. Taiwan has been an issue of hers for, for a very long time, and China has been a, a sort of bet, bet noir of hers for a very long time. This is not the adults returning to the room, Yeah, as you were saying. Um, the States really couldn't be higher. And yet we are left with these kind of bumbling, geriatric, unserious politicians. And that's a real, real danger for the world.
0: So Beyonce has bowed to pressure to change the lyrics in one of the songs on her recent album. Uh, The lyrics went spazzing on that ass. And people have taken this (laughs) as um, an ableist slur. Uh, So she's re-recording the song. What's interesting, Ella, and I'm sure you'll tell us a bit more about this, is that this is not even a unique case. This mm-hmm. has happened before quite recently.
2: Yeah, Lizzo did the same and one of her songs that she recently released. Um, the line read, I'm a, I'm a spaz. Not I am a spaz, but like, I'm going to spaz. Mm. You know, the confusing thing is that like, spaz, as, as in spastic, as in the nasty word for people who are disabled or have a condition, is, is kind of particularly... A British thing. Yeah, it's something that used is previously used in British slang. Certainly and, more so. Yeah, more yeah. so. Americans, it kind of it doesn't it doesn't compute as much. It's not so obviously recognizable. Yeah. Which is you know maybe the excuse that has been used. But
1: <laughs> and also he, it is a, is a recognizable kind of slang word yes. to kind of lose control. Yeah, yeah. go crazy. Yeah, and that kind of generic. I, th-
2: I think the whole thing is that you know you have to ask the question: Has Beyonce written a song, an ableist song? Yeah. to... Dis the disabled community, no, that's mm-hmm. clearly not what's happened. Context is important, and yet you have this you know it just shows the kind of the pressure from the online mob that you have the single most famous you know, achieving woman in music, Beyonce, who is like, you know, Queen B, yeah. having to change, re-record a lyric in her song mm. because she's so terrified of the online backlash. And it's, you know, it it's so pathetic. And it reminds me of I was thinking about when this has happened in music history before. And in 1981, Ian Drury and the Blockheads released a song called Spasticus Autisticus. Mm. And it made big waves. And it was because the injury had polio when he was a child. And he was continuously being asked by these disabled charities to, you know, do a sort of benefit song, things like yeah. that. And he said he was hated the patronizing way in which disabled people were talked about, mm. uh, that they had to have this special day or they couldn't have, I wonder what he'd make about today, wouldn't couldn't have these kind of lyrics in a song. That he basically did this two-finger song, saying, and the lyrics in it, one of which was, "I dribble when I piddle because I'm screwed up in the middle," or something like that, was banned by the BBC. Mm. And it was a real, it was a real defiant stance of saying, "For God's sake, I can write what songs I like. I can write about, you know, anything to do with me. And can you stop being so precious about this thing of being disabled?" And it just shows you how much has changed since 1981. That we are now in a position in which you simply uttering the word, even out of context of if no one thinks it's great to call someone a spaz in a nasty word, yeah. you know, we're all we're all past that, thankfully. But even the word existing has to be censored. It's just you know how pathetic has music become yeah. if the legacy of jury hasn't been able to carry on.
0: I mean, Tom, this this, this word spaz appears all over hip hop and R&B, as you said, it, it kind of is just meant to be crazy. Mm. It's not really aimed at disabled people at all.
1: Why now? I th- uh, it's That's a really good question, I think, because it's, it's almost so random mm. how these things um, kind of land, because especially if you think about kind of as you were saying like rap music or whatever there's all sorts of things you go after if you really wanted to you <laughs> <Yeah>. know <laughs> you know they, from politically a woke, correct they're not politically rappers. correct even from a kind of quite woke perspective but they don't because there's, there's this odd calculation which mm. a lot of these things are kind of random but what's interesting is that it's almost like as soon as the claim is made yeah. on behalf of a particular community i mean leading the charge in this case were a lot of british disability charities mm. um scope in particular the they put out a statement one of their representatives did, talking about how this kind of language makes disabled people's lives more difficult every single day, which is an absurd statement. Not only does it not take into account the um, context and the meaning obviously implied here, it's one line yeah. into the song. It's not even particularly significant. Um, Beyonce is very famous and successful. This album has already, already broken all kinds of streaming records and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, the idea that you know she has unleashed you know, horrors against the disabled communities, it's absolutely insane. No one would have noticed it yeah. otherwise. Um but the problem is we that argument would sound more absurd to us if we didn't hear a version of it every other day about any other issue. And yeah. it, as I say, as soon as as soon as the claim is made, mm. everyone has to kind of just bow down to it. That's the dynamic. Doesn't matter how ridiculous, doesn't matter how obvious obviously a stretch this particular thing is, context doesn't matter, um, intent doesn't matter. Mm. I think the thing that's different. I suppose two things are different. You know, people complaining about pop songs and getting upset about them is as old as the form itself. Of course, I think Elvis's all, hips. You know, onwards. You know, all, yeah. all this stuff. We all know, we all know this. And what you see is that the taboos change. You know, yeah. so you go. It goes from being sex and drugs and violence or whatever to now it's any kind of ism and mm-hmm. phobia. Uh, what I think so that on the whole is is the taboos have changed, but you know the kind of offence culture necessarily hasn't. What is quite different here is the willingness of the pop stars themselves to give into it. Yeah, I think as as Ella was pointing to with the Ian Jury example, again it's like the, the kind of expectation that they're primarily interested in making their own music and also there being a kind of slightly rebellious edge to it maybe is gone. Being a nice person in inverted commas is mm. more important, and there's a kind of sense in which this is also an internal like the fans get upset. about Yeah as well, which I find really, really strange. Um, and so that's, that's one thing which I think is a little bit different. But I think it is worth remembering that in terms of the, whether we're talking about this kind of new generation of offence takers, they're as irritating and stiff and censorious as their forebears, you know, mm. as, the, as the kind of Mary Whitehouse crowd. You know, they might have swapped the blue rinse for the blue dip dye and they might be upset about slightly different things, mm. but it betrays a similarly deadening, boring, pathetic anti-artistic perspective on the world and i think we should call those people out for that just because they're claiming to speak on behalf of disabled people today you know on very tenuous grounds doesn't mean they have the moral high ground They're as irritating and should be mocked really if they're going to respond in this in such over-the-top fashion to what is obviously not a hateful song or lyric (laughs) to any stretch of the imagination
0: Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.